0: Well, good morning to you all. Um, as it was mentioned, my name is Christian, and I'm going to be giving the message this morning. We're, we're taking a little break uh, from the, the, what we've been doing for the summer, which is the summer in the Psalms, and uh, we're taking a break for uh, a little bit uh, more reasons than, than just baptism. As also was mentioned, we're going to have a, a, a little conference on the subject of missions. And uh, I mean, some missionaries are going to be coming, and they're going to be sharing. They're going to be a stepped-up time with missionaries and hearing reports, and, and the ability to pray and the ability to support them. And uh, so, I'm actually going to bring to us a missions-themed message this morning. Um, so, uh, with that, let me go ahead and uh, and pray to get us started. Our Heavenly Father, we give thanks that we can gather together uh, once again. We give thinks uh, that it is the majesty of your gospel that has drawn us, because so many different people, so many different stations and walks of life have no other reason to be together but that your gospel has worked. Lord, help us to appreciate that. Help us to value uh, what your gospel is and what it does, and by extension, to value everyone that your gospel touches and draws together. So we give thanks for the baptized uh, people that were, uh, we witnessed this morning. We pray your hand of blessing over them, but even so, help all of us who are already baptized to hold our baptism special and that it would constantly remind us that we belong to you. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that it would accomplish its work for which you sent it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, if you would turn to Philippians, we'll be in uh, chapter 4, and um, picking up in verse 10, I'm going to read verse 10 all the way through verse 20 this morning of Philippians 4. Paul says this, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have re- revived your concern for me. having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply your every, need, uh, every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Missions is a a subject that has been very familiar to me because it's actually the environment that I grew up in. Um, My parents' purpose to become missionaries long before I was born and long after I've left the home, they are still in missions today. Um, And so I'm what is, uh, is commonly called a missionary kid, an M.K., And uh, there was a huge amount of variety in our lives. I I got to travel to many places, almost innumerable. Um, We visited huge cities and very rural villages. Um, We made countless friends. I witnessed mass conversions, okay? Um, And I was able to meet those types of people behind those crazy missionary stories that you hear about, like... Like the, the story of the guy who was plotting to kill a local missionary and instead met the Lord. And so now the two of them are serving the Lord together. I met people like, like that. okay. Um, now, I, I'm telling you this because I want you to know that missions is something that was very familiar to me on the one hand. But I would also like to tell you this morning that missions was something that I also overlooked. Now, how can that be? Well, there there is a sense in which when you become so familiarized with something, you you can make all kinds of assumptions about it without ever having really looked at it closely. As a matter of fact, I'd say this is a common experience when you're growing up. And so we'll pick cars. Now, if you press me, I really don't know very much about cars. So please don't press me very hard. But as a kid, I thought I knew and understood cars, right? Cars, they they come in different colors. They come in different shapes. (laughs) Some cars drive fast. Some cars drive slow. Some cars need to take a break on the side of the road, like like ours did pretty frequently. And and there was, in my mind, a lot that I knew about cars. But as you get older, and if you ever have to own a car, you begin learning that there's a lot more that you need to know. And a great deal about what you need to know about a car (laughs) isn't its color. Uh, isn 't if it drives this way or that it 's what 's under the hood and so when i 'm talking about missions i 'm saying there was a lot of things in the exterior of what we did that I was very familiar with there was a lot of things that I would say are under the hood of missions that I really needed to know and and One reason why I like this passage from the end of Philippians so much is because I think it is a good look under the hood of what drives missions, what drives missions activity. And we're at a moment in our church where we're actually striving to regain kind of old purposes and commitments that this church had. And so, uh, long ago, this church uh, uh, purposed to hold a missions conference pretty routinely. Uh, often so that it would help the, uh, the, the congregation and the church to be well informed of what our missionaries uh, uh, experience and what life is like and how can we better pray for you and serve you. And I'll just admit to you, it has been many years since this church has done that. And so right at this moment, I actually think it is a great time to have a look under the hood, biblically, what should drive missions. And I think that there's three things that this text brings to us that are really important that are under the hood. And So three lessons, they are the gospel creates a mighty salvation, and the gospel creates a meaningful stewardship, and the gospel provides for its servants. And I'm going to try to convince you that that is what is under the hood of this thing we call missions. So the the first part of this, then, is that the gospel creates a mighty salvation. Now, if you look closely at our text, you're not actually going to see those particular words there. And uh, so I'm going I'm I'm to put it this way. <laughs> the reason that this text it exists at all, the reason why the book of Philippians exists at all is because God created a mighty salvation that had already done work. It had already accomplished uh, manifold things that had made changes and it necess- necessitated or occasioned a letter and this letter itself is a testimony to the might and strength of the work that God had accomplished already through his gospel. So this point is a point, it's a, the entire context of Philippians. So you might think a little bit about how the Philippian church began. Uh, if, you, if you don't know, I'll, I'll tell you, and you can read up on this in Acts chapter 16, um, Paul and his companion uh, showed up in Philippi, and very quickly, a woman named Lydia became a believer, and her life immediately began changing, and she began living and doing things different, and it occasioned more and more change. Well, in that city, there was also a a slave girl who was demon-possessed. And the owners of the slave girl actually made money off of a unique ability that she had by her demon possession. (laughs) But Paul ended up casting that demon out of her. And all of a sudden, her owners could not make the money that they had otherwise been making. And they incited a riot. And during this riot, Paul and Silas are nabbed and put Into prison. Actually, they're beaten severely before they're put into prison. (laughs) And that night is a night when an earthquake happens and it breaks the prison open. And all the prisoners looks like they could have escaped. In those days, a jailer was in charge of a prison to the extent that if prisoners escaped, his life was forfeit. The jailer assumed that the prisoners had all escaped and he was intending to commit suicide right then and there, preferable to simply being executed in the morning. (laughs) When Paul calls out and says, hey, we're all here. The jailer is stunned and amazed and immediately asks, how can I be saved? He has seen things that are unbelievable to him. (laughs) And he recognizes that they have what he needs. And this is how the Philippian church began. And, and if you would reread read that story, you say, this isn't just an adequate salvation. This is a mighty salvation. It is, it is something huge and tremendous, pivotal and life, life-changing. Um, and so because that had happened, that's why Paul has an occasion to write a letter to the Philippian church. And... And so Lydia's life is totally different. That jailer's life is totally different. And the letter that Paul writes oozes the strength and magnitude of the salvation God had already been accomplishing in that church and the total conviction that God is going to do nothing but keep that going. And I do wish I could tell you more about this particular point. The gospel creates a mighty salvation. One, one aspect of the Bible storyline is, is this. Um, the gospel parallels and outdistances what God accomplished through the Exodus. And so, so you think that the story of the Exodus with, with Moses confronting Pharaoh and God rescuing the Israelites with a mighty hand that leaves... That he leaves <laughs> Egypt devastated, and God's people prosperous. He reverses the the, the complete uh, uh, status of what the situation was before. You'd think that that story is awesome. Well, the Bible communicates what God did through Jesus is even greater. It's even greater yet. Okay, now this should help us understand something that is important. This salvation is mighty because it is according to his riches in glory. And that phrase is in our text, that God would strengthen and provide according to his riches in glory. This isn't just a nice, pretty thing to say. This is actually the resource that is happening here. Um, So in verses 19 and 20, Paul refers to glory in two different ways in the first way, God's glory is to the benefit of the church. He would strengthen you according to his riches, the magnitude of his riches. That's my expectation that he will strengthen you. And my friends, that is, that is a lot. Okay. Um, And you could put it this way. God knows, or sorry, Paul knows this because God's glory is the riches by which he created the church. So it's only makes sense that God's glory is also the riches by which he will continue to sustain it. So to, to Paul, this is not a small matter. that The glory of God is the very thing that makes his salvation, his gospel, so mighty. So glory comes from God to accomplish his work. And then glory returns to God. And that's the second way that Paul uses the word glory. He ascribes glory back. Okay? It's like this tremendous cycle that is intent to build and strengthen his church. And, And I'll put it this way. The gospel is designed to display the very glory of God. And how could you possibly display God's glory in it not? That just wouldn't make sense. Uh, How could it not be stunning? It would be like, you know, how could the Grand Canyon not be grand? It has to be grand. It has to draw breath. Okay? And if it is God's own glory that is being presented, then by rights, it should make all other glories look pale. All other glories look thin. And what I'm saying is, is that that is what is under the hood. That is what was fueling the church through the times that we've, we're, we're taking a look into uh, in this book of uh, Philippians. And I hope that this also makes our next consideration make sense because the salvation is mighty because it transforms lives. If, if you know Paul's story, his background at all, then, then you will know how dramatically his life was changed by Jesus. Um, and he actually reminded the Philippian church of this in chapter 3. In chapter 3, he lists out a bunch of stuff of the way that he was, uh, some of his credentials. Uh, these were things that he used to regard really highly. Um, in, in earlier times, Paul was immersed in a, a, a life effort that sought to present itself to God by living a supposedly elite moral life. Um, And so, what what Paul had sort of thought was that what went wrong with the Israel project earlier, and the reason why they went into exile, is they did not do a good enough job in in obeying God. And so, he was part of a Pharisee group. The Pharisees were out to demonstrate how to get it right. And... uh, it was, it was rather interesting. So let me, um, let me read uh, the things that he lists here. Um, he says, if anyone else, this is Philippians 3, and is picking up in the middle of verse 4. If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And that's what Paul was striving for, and he thought that that was how you presented yourself to God and either uh, encouraged others to do the same thing you did or shamed those who would not. Okay, And so Paul looked down on any form of compromise, As a matter of fact, when the Christian church came about, he as a Pharisee identified the Christian church as severe compromise. And that's why he persecuted the church. His zeal for the purity of what he thought one should be caused him to persecute the church heavily. Okay, Ironically, his effort to defend what he thought was true of God was literally only defending his own ideas. And he was far removed from God's real enterprise. He was far removed from the gospel that God had already accomplished, and he was in opposition to it. He was the most unlikely convert that you would ever probably see. And so it is amazing. It's stunning to see what happened. You know, Paul is writing the book of uh, Philippians, this letter, from prison. And in prison, he's in uh, some form of confinement. He's not at full liberty, but he's writing this about how he used to be. And I bet that it crossed his mind, back then, I never imagined. I couldn't possibly have imagined I would be doing now what I'm doing, (laughs) okay? That my life would look so different. And I bet he also thought that back then, I thought I was free, but I was so enslaved. And now people think that I am prisoner, but I have never been so free. I mean, you can just feel this joy bubbling out of the book of Philippians. And that is a mark, not just of a a mere salvation, that is the mark of a mighty salvation that has utterly, changed a life from where it was. Paul is writing to people who have also experienced change like that. And he's motivated because they, together, want to see more of this. And that leads us to the final point under this. Because of this, we should consider this salvation is mighty because it motivates the church. So it's, it's very clear that the gospel is the central driving force in the life of the early church. It revolved around this thing called the gospel. They had no other resources. Okay, um, uh, <clears throat> But in our text, Paul says something that's a little curious. And let me try to draw your attention to it. In verse 15, he says, "...and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel..." When I left Macedonia. And, and then he goes on. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about what he goes on to say. But I'd like to, like to draw your attention to something curious. He says, in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia. Now, if I was to ask you, hey, when was the beginning of the gospel, what would you think? You know, um, I think that you would likely say something that sounded really wise, like maybe when Jesus rose from the dead. All right? That was the beginning of the gospel. And, and Paul here says, in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia. That's a very curious thing to say, don't you think? Um, well, what I'd like to say is that when, when something becomes centralized in one's goals, one's motivations, one's, one's fixation, we actually talk like this sometimes. We actually nab something that is a big, uh, it, it has huge implications, and it's, it's really wide. And we nab part of it, and we index part of our life off of it. And that's actually what Paul is doing here. So, so my friends, Paul is not actually saying that the gospel began <laughs> when he left Macedonia, all right? Uh, he's not actually saying that, but what he is saying is the gospels work in Macedonia, and this region was beginning The gospel was reaching, and so that's why he uses that language. But just by virtue of talking like this about that gospel indicates how central the gospel was. It is a uh, life-indexing moment, Uh, kind of like for us, when a life-indexing moment. Number one was when we had our first child. For us parents, we actually know that that is a life-indexing moment, but sometimes you don't quite know how big it's going to be, but... In our case, we had a second one, Okay, So so it it would play out like this. Uh, Before your first one, you don't know how how hard you're going to get rammed by this thing, like having a baby, all right? And then you stagger out from under that, and people are chatting with you, and you'll say something like, oh, that was before we had kids. I'm not expected to remember that, all right? But then later on in life, it happened again. And what happened is we didn't just have another baby. We had twins. And there's a whole subcategory of people who are parents and those who have twins. And your eyes meet across the room, and there's this exchange of, oh, okay? Like, there's there's a big stretch of life we do not remember well. And so then we had the freedom to say, oh, that was before we had twins. You can't expect us to remember that. And, oh, that was after we had twins. You can't expect us to remember that either. All right? Well, those are life indexing moments. And what Paul is doing here is he's treating the gospel itself as a life indexing moment. And so just off the cuff, he just writes naturally saying, You know, in the beginning of the gospel, and that is because this life indexing moment is just as firmly planted in the Philippian church as it is as it is in Paul. Alright? And that's a mark of of a of, of church that is motivated by the gospel. And that's the evidence that God's gospel is mighty. And what I'm trying to just do is trying to get you to see and to savor and to value that this is under the hood of that word called missions, okay? This is under the hood of those people that are to come that you may not, not, not even know. This is under the hood of why they purpose their life to go in that direction. And I'm going to say this is under our hood of those of us who profess to be Christians and followers of Jesus. So it's good to know what's under the hood, but I have to tell you, there's also more. And, and, and so the, the next thing about what's under the hood is this. The gospel creates a meaningful stewardship. And, and one thing that flags this out and brings it to quick attention is that Paul uses the language of financial accounting in verse 17. He says this, I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. (laughs) And that term or the phrase increases to your credit is actually financial language that Paul nabbed and he threw it into, well, ministry. Um, And Paul is complimenting them And Paul goes on to describe the financial gift that this church had pulled together and had commissioned probably one of their own to take over a great distance to wherever he was in prison, possibly in Rome, but we do not know for sure. And that gift arrives and Paul compliments them and says, this increases to your credit. And then he goes on to describe it. It says a fragrant offering an acceptable, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. And, and what this indicates is that even though salvation is God's doing, the gospel is God's creation, and you did not earn that gospel. you did not contribute to that gospel, except you provided something to be saved. The same gospel is still designed to create a meaningful stewardship in which Christians should be motivated to go on pleasing God. Christians should be motivated to say, what would be an acceptable sacrifice that is pleasing to God? How can I conform my life even more and more to that? Now, it's important to recognize then that this is not to attain a higher level of salvation or a special privilege before God. No, but rather it is to reflect the quality of salvation that is already there. So let me, let me try to put it this way. Um, if I have a tool that is broken, and that ha- happens often enough in my life, okay? So uh, not too long ago, I was using a specialized drill, and something was going out, and it would, it would not engage when I pulled the trigger, all right? And so I was trying to use it, I was trying to do fastenings, and I, I found I couldn't rely on this particular drill. And guess what? Trying to use that drill didn't fix it. Can you imagine? Okay, so what would it take to fix the drill? Well, using the drill isn't going to fix it. Instead, that drill actually needs outside intervention. So one day, I sat down, opened the thing up, cleaned a whole bunch of contacts and stuff, and put it back together, and guess what? It worked. Fantastic. All right, did using the drill fix the drill? No. It had to be fixed from the outside. But my friends, what is the evidence that a drill has been fixed. It works. It works. Let's put this in a a big picture if we can. The Bible presents a picture of Adam being a very special servant of God. He's distinguished from all of creation and placed in God's own garden. And no one would do that except with their most special servants that they could trust. And so that is a picture of Adam back then. And Adam is presented as this this very privileged servant of God who gets fired. Because if you follow that story, he is expelled from the garden. He's put out of God's, uh, God's presence before he could eat out of the garden, he could eat out of God's own bounty, but afterwards he is said God tells him, "You have to grow your own." And guess what? It is going to be by the sweat of your brow. You're no longer getting benefits from my from from, from my pack. You're not even getting severance pay. Okay, you have to start earning your own way. Now that is one picture of things that are happening in this biblical story, and the rest of the Bible story engages in how would God call his servants back? How would God place them back into his service? Because if you look at mankind closely, I hope that you would be able to see that mankind does not live like he's God's servant. Instead, he lives like he is his own master. And it would actually take a tremendous change and a receiving back for people to genuinely work for God. Well, You see that story in the Old Testament, and God calls Israel as a special servant. But there's a problem, and that problem bugs you over and over and over. If you read those stories, you will get frustrated. You'll get frustrated with those guys because after God did so much, they would always turn to something else. And and here's the thing. It eventually becomes clear that God's work for the Israelites had not changed their hearts. So enter the gospel And the gospel is the story of how God calls his servants back now through converting and changing hearts. That's why God's gospel is mighty. It accomplishes that. So what would be an evidence that God's servants have successfully been called back? Well, a good drill drills and a servant serves. And and that's why a meaningful stewardship that is built into the outflow of what the gospel accomplishes signifies to the world God has actually accomplished a change. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone is perfect in that stewardship. It is simply saying that it exists. But it's not simply stewardship. It's not simply work. I'm saying that it's meaningful. Now, the book of Philippians pulls this out, and it puts it on display. And so, if you were to go further back, Paul has already said this to the Philippians in chapter two, verses 12 and 13. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And, what this is saying is this is not a work that supplants what the gospel has accomplished. This is a work that, that shows on the outside what God is doing on the inside. And it's just designed to work that way. And that's why Paul will use language that complements the stewardship of the Philippian church. He, he, even, he even thinks that it's appropriate to mention to them, you guys were the only church in that province that supported me. And I would say it, it's not a put down of all the other churches, but rather it is an encouragement to the Philippian church. Okay, Maybe those other churches were still working on, on resourcing their, their own, providing for their own, which is an important step uh, of, of stewardship, actually. Um, or maybe those churches were busy supporting other people. That, 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 that's not the issue. But Paul singles out the Philippian church as deserving of special compliment. And so he bubbles out. With this phrase, uh, or this sentence, not that I seek the gift, not that I'm seeking the money, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. You know, as I go through life, I, I see a lot of people who work hard. But many of them work hard on things that are ultimately not very meaningful. How much better would it be to be involved Work. And that's why I'm glad that this is in the Bible. God's gospel not only saves, but it restores. It puts things back to work. It does the opposite of what Adam did. It restores back. And, And it then it provides meaningful work that contributes toward a lasting kingdom. And it's it's a work that encourages and strengthens the church. And so it should be meaningful to be able to work for God, for your work to be counted uh, for, for, his, uh, for his kingdom. And it should be meaningful for the power of the gospel to be made visible that by actions that bless and encourage others. And, and so when we're talking about what's under the hood, we need to see that the mighty gospel is a is accompanied by a meaningful stewardship. And it's designed to be visible. It's designed so that others can see that it's there. It's designed to to yield fruit that tastes good. So others will be blessed and strengthened by it and want more of that fruit and so further the work of the gospel. You know, I I actually do think that that is a pretty good motivation to attend a, a missions conference. I think that it's a tremendous stewardship opportunity that is coming our way. And that it's, um, it's just part of a work that has ongoing opportunity to be invested in other lives that are doing that work and partnering in those ways. Before I, before I leave the subject of stewardship, let me just give a, a couple bits of, well, I hope it's wisdom. We already know uh, that the stewardship is not to attain a better standing before God. But it is supposed to be pleasing to God by showing that his gospel has worked and, has, and continues to work and continues to call us to grow. Uh, now, a stewardship mentality then is appropriate for all Christians, whether they're going to be involved in international missions or not uh, or anything else. Stewardship is a claim on our lives simply as believers But built into that word stewardship, it sounds like there's good ways and not so good ways. Let me just throw you a couple of of tips, if I can. Um, The Bible makes it clear that proper stewardship begins with faithfulness in small things before reaching for bigger things. Uh, Something that I heard that I thought, this is good, Uh, a little, little statement. It says, don't expect God to use you as a lighthouse, if he cannot first use you as a candle. Let me repeat that. Don't expect God to use you as a lighthouse if, you can't, if he cannot first use you as a candle. So much testimony of the quality of the gospel is carried by candles burning over and above the big, flashy, and the sensational things that are out there. As a matter of fact, I... I believe I know missionaries that I wish I could sit down and say the same thing to because it's sometimes human tendency to say, well, let's not worry about this small stuff. Let's reach for the big. But stewardship in God's kingdom is faithfulness with the little things, and that makes you even more qualified to be entrusted with the bigger. Well, well, what would that look like? Well, it would mean tending to things at home, relationships at home, if you're the dad being a faithful spiritual leader at home, if you're the kid obeying your parents at home, trying to get your relationships there and elsewhere to simply evidence more of the fruit of the spirit, making a long overdue apology to someone that you might have hurt. Maybe seeking a mentoring relationship that will help you grow or attending a class that would help you learn and equip you for other things. So I'm saying God's kingdom is designed to work and flow out from faithfulness from the little things for the bigger things. And matter of fact, I'll just say us having a missions conference is our own working at remaining faithful in those littler things, those commitments we made long ago. Those missionaries and those contacts, we say, boy, shouldn't we really try to oil and lubricate those relationships and supply for them well before we start raising our vision for, for the greater? And I think that is, that is a great mentality. Stewardship should also cause you to evaluate what are good areas to serve in. And like Adam Hoff is working on... Uh, sort of pioneering a, a project to, to strengthen a creation ministry that would be based out of a church but bring really qualified, uh, high-level creation speakers uh, to be able to come and not just edify this church but, but churches throughout Flagstaff and maybe even other cities uh, that would be motivated to come. And it's, it's, it's a great enterprise and going to take a lot of work. And there's eventually going to be a sign-up sheet saying, hey, here's places you could serve. Well, a stewardship mentality might say, I should look at that list and I should prayerfully think about, do I belong on it? Stewardship would also say, you know what, if if that's not what I'm called to, I believe that I'm called to something else. But at least you're using stewardship as a platform uh, to evaluate it. Um, There are things that are like that, and that's part of what God's gospel is designed to accomplish, a meaningful work. But that's not all that's under the hood. The gospel also provides for its servants. So the gospel not only saves and puts to work, God provides for everything else along the way. And and that's under the hood too. And we see that richly in our text. It bubbles out. Um, One is that the, the gospel provides through contentment. And uh, you you can really catch that in how Paul talks about these things. He says, I know how to be brought low and how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And Paul is saying, I am content even with or without your gift. And that contentment is a supply from God. And by the way, this isn't ambivalence. Paul was grateful that the money came. It probably helped him stay alive because he, he needed to have food supplied to him, and the, the government wasn't going to be fending that, most likely. And it also facilitated ministry that went out. So Paul's not ambivalent, but he is content. And that's one way that the gospel changes hearts and it provides for its servants by helping them be content wherever they are. Okay, Paul even, even says that he's received full payment. <laughs> And that's back to those financial words, full payment. Like, God God paid me up as a servant. I am fine. I'm great. I am well supplied. Now, he actually says, uh, I'm full payment and more, and I am well supplied. And you know what? I bet if I went and I assessed him, I would say, Paul, I see all kinds of needs. I see room for improvement, okay? But to Paul, what God has supplied in his life, vastly outdistance the rest of his circumstances, and he is content. There's no way that the earlier Paul would have ever been like this. That gospel is mighty. But the gospel provides in more ways than just that. So another one is the gospel provides strength to do the right thing. I think it would be a mistake if you read uh, what Paul then says In verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I think it would be a mistake to read that as if Paul could then decide whatever I want to do, God will help me do, and he'll strengthen me to do it. I don't think that's what he's saying. What he's saying is I can do all the things that God takes me to, (laughs) okay? Through him, he gives me strength. I can survive a shipwreck. Okay, I can survive prison. I can survive uh, floating out in the sea for days because he actually mentions that that has happened to him in other places. Okay, and he's like, everything God takes me through because of my commitment to the gospel, he provides the strength for me. And that only makes sense if God is providing for his servants. Okay, another way that provision is made is that the gospel provides by motivating concern for other servants. So we saw how Paul rejoiced at the gift that the the Philippians sent him. And in this, Paul is recognizing that the gospel was working in them. And and that kept their concern for him going. Um, And this is a way that the gospel provides. It provides through other believers. Other believers who are aware enough to say, God, do you want me to provide something for somebody else? And there's, there's a lot of ways that these things play out and happen. Um, and this is one reason why I believe that the subject of missions is also a subject for the health of the church. It's actually a reflection of, of a church. Does it have an outward focus? Does it care? Does it, does it remember its, its, missions, uh, its missionary faces? Is it involved in prayer for them? These things spin out of a gospel uh, operating healthfully. And that's why I think missions accomplishes even more in the life of a church than just missions. And by the way, to that end, uh, we have a prayer guide that is filled with the faces of our missionaries. And uh, I'll be honest with you, when my family got a hold of this, we took it apart we stuck it in a three-ring binder, and we stuffed a whole bunch more people into it. <laughs> and so ours is that thick. And usually, every night that we're together as a family, we'll have a Bible time, and part of that is we will review one of our missionaries, and we will pray. Um, because that's, that's just a natural part of the gospel's concern that God shows his care through his church from one servant to another. And Paul is rejoicing, not simply that he got a gift, but he's rejoicing that God's gospel is still doing that work. You know, sometimes people, scholars, history scholars, they wonder, why was it that the the Christianity spread like wildfire during 300 years of rampant persecution from the Roman government? (laughs) And humanly speaking, it doesn't add up the church is under-resourced <laughs> and and the church doesn't have sensational people in it but christianity spread like wildfire and i'm going to say the reason why the historians sometimes don't get it is they don't know what's under the hood they just don't and the philippian church did and paul did and they could not help but be fueled motivated and serve with everything they had in the cause of the gospel? You know, with resources like this, what, what would hold you back? You know, if you're here today, and if you're not a believer, there's some serious things I believe that are here for you to think about. And, and one of the choices that is on the table is this. It's the question of whose glory will you live for and will it last? Let me point out that our human endeavors are full of attempts at glory. But our human endeavors are fleeting, they're fraught with mishap, and generationally we tear down an older generation's glory in order to build the next. (laughs) And that's what will happen to Even this generation's glory, too. What glory would you live for, and will it last? Instead, think about this. To be enlisted in the endeavor to manifest God's glory is itself a glorious thing. Why not be in a work that will outlast? All others. Now, I think a challenge that is for us who are believers will be this. It is to be really earnest about what's under the hood and not what's on the chrome. What's under the hood is or should be our principal focus and concern. Let me just try to give a quick example here. You know we got this missions conference coming. It starts on Friday. It kicks off with an Indian taco fest. This isn't an Indian taco sale. The church, the missions committee, decided that the church will provide Indian tacos. Um, I happen to really enjoy Indian tacos. I keep company with a lot of people that also enjoy Indian tacos. Okay? They're, they're, uh, they're really yummy. But if you ask me straight up, I'll say, yes, it sounds like a bribe to me. Okay? <laughs> I will follow that up with, I am willing to test this theory of mine. (laughs) Okay, so Indian tacos are a great attraction. Every time I see the sign on the street, Indian tacos sale, I'm pretty tempted to head that direction. Okay, And I always turn out when Indian Bible College has an Indian taco. However, let's just think about this. The purpose of the missions conference is really to engage our missionaries. It'd be sad for me to be more excited about an Indian taco than they. Even more than that, hmm. what if someone was gluten intolerant? What if an Indian taco really wasn't a bribe for them at all? Okay. What if someone, out of health reasons, was said, you have to cut your cholesterol by two-thirds, and that is not a good food option? What if somebody's training for a sports event, a marathon, and they're like, I can't really eat that food. So what if you're in the position of saying, do I want to go to an event at which I need to bring my own food? You will answer that question based on what's under the hood in your life. And as a church, I'm saying we need to be more concerned under what is under the hood of the gospel than what is on the plate. So think about that. Hmm. You know, if you're a Christian uh, who is a younger Christian, a younger believer, we've mentioned a lot of things that I believe are important for growing as a follower of Jesus. Who you spend time with will greatly impact the stewardship choices that you make, the stewardship choices that lie ahead. And I would encourage you in the direction of deliberately making choices to incorporate those kinds of relationships with others who are clearly doing a good job in stewardship, with who are clearly following a path that they're growing as a believer. Incidentally, missions conference might be a good way of meeting some of those folks. But you also might want to sit down and look at your calendar and ask this question, am I prioritizing things of little importance? How can I make the gospel more evident in how I spend my time or the nature of conversation that I keep? Think about your prayer life. Does it have anything like this in it? Does it need to add something like this in it? You can pick these up right over there on the table if you want. But if you've been a Christian a long time, I suspect I've only told you things you already knew. Maybe it was good for you to hear them again. As a a matter of fact, uh, I have to hear reminders over and over weekly in my life. But I think there's some very practical things that is worth thinking about here. Have you ever thought about following up with somebody six months after they were baptized? Say, hey, how's that going? I, I saw you make a public commitment. I'm following Jesus. And I witnessed that, and I, I just want to know how's that going. Is there a way that I can help you? That's one reason why we might. Well, one reason why it's healthy to have baptisms in a church, so that the church can say, "Hey, I remember that. How is that going? How is that following up?" You could think about inviting other people, you know, to an event like a missions conference. You could think about initiating correspondence with missionaries so you could be in deeper touch with them on a personal level to say, How is it going? I want you to know, I want you to know we prayed for you last night when we were praying through our prayer guide. Understanding what is under the hood should make a difference. Knowing that the gospel creates a mighty salvation should give us confidence that it will accomplish its work. Knowing also that it creates a meaningful stewardship should cause us to be vested in living meaningful lives. And knowing that the gospel provides for its servants should cause us to rest in its promises and hold nothing back. Our Heavenly Father, we give thanks That you provided a mighty salvation that changes lives, that gives us meaningful things to do, and that provides for its servants. We pray that you would help us individually to, to continue to grow in ways that reflect the magnitude of your work, and that as a church, we would also strive to do that as well. Help us to be faithful in those little things so that you would entrust us with the greater, not for our glory, but so that your name would be magnified and that the message of the gospel would simply look stunning. I pray and ask these things in Jesus' name.